Hey. What you doing? I'm Brandon Horwin. And I'm Sophie Williams. And today's special guest is... My name is Beverly Bass. I'm a retired 777 captain with American Airlines. I flew for them for 32 years. And today I fly a jet that's privately owned, a Phenom 100. And uh, not doing much flying right now, but I have been flying the jet for four years. Excellent. Well, we are so excited to have you on What You Doing with Brandon Horwin and Sophie Williams. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor and we're so thrilled. Thank you. Beverly and I met at Come From Away a few years ago at this point. I was shadowing Arturo and you had some folks that you were bringing backstage at the time after a performance, one of the many that you saw, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But it was an exciting moment because you're portrayed in the show and it was exciting to see you there. And here we are today. Yes, and I remember that night on Broadway. (laughs) So you've had a really important and noteworthy career. And so can you just take us through your journey a little bit and to, you know, where you are now? Oh, my goodness. Where do I start? Um, You know, I, I started taking flying lessons in... 1971. I was 19 years old and I had always wanted to be a pilot, but you know, back then it was kind of unusual for women to fly. I didn't know a single female pilot and I wanted to fly the biggest airplanes and that meant the military or the airlines and we couldn't get in the military as pilots in the early 70s. That didn't happen until about 1976 when the first cadets were at the Air Force Academy. And, you know, so I just did my flying via the civilian route. And I started in Fort Myers, Florida, which is where I soloed and I was also raised here. But I went to college at TCU in Fort Worth And then I did most of my flying, about 90% of it in the Fort Worth area and in Dallas. And I just had lots of jobs before I got hired by the airlines because in our world, it's all about building flight hours. And because it's so expensive to pay for those hours, you hope to get a job as quickly as possible. So I started flight instructing And then my first real job was flying bodies for a mortician in Fort Worth. And the airplane was so small, you could only take one body at a time. And usually it was if somebody passed away in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and they needed to be delivered to their family in another city or another state. So I would deliver that body to their family or I would pick up a body in another state and bring it back to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but one body at a time, no casket. I thought it was a great job. I didn't realize until much later that it wasn't a normal job. (laughs) And um, yeah, (laughs) so I went to college in the daytime, flew bodies at night, and then I uh, flew for two corporations. Then I flew night freight out of Love Field, five nights a week from nine at night till three in the morning. And that's when we actually flew canceled checks for banks and photomat film, which 
you know, today you all don't even probably know what photomat film is, <laughs> but, but it had to be delivered every night. So that's what we did. And then in 1976, I was 24 years old and I was hired by American as their third female pilot. And there were only three of us for several years. And then we grew to the whopping number of five and stayed that way until the mid 80s. And then things pretty much opened up. And I don't even know how many women we hired in the 80s. But today, American has 15,000 pilots and I believe 700 are women. Our numbers are still small. We Worldwide, we represent about five to six percent of the pilot force. So we haven't made a lot of progress in 40 some odd years that women have been with the airlines, but we try to recruit women. In 1978, I co-founded an organization called ISA Plus 21, stands for the International Society of Women Airline Pilots. I actually started it with another female pilot who flew for Braniff. And of course, Braniff ended up going out of business and she ended her career with Alaska Airlines. But we had our first convention in Las Vegas and there were probably about 35 to 40 women flying for the airlines in 1978 and 21 showed up at our first convention, hence the name ISA Plus 21. And it is still going strong today. We have uh, members from over 90 airlines and 35 countries. And I believe we're closing in on somewhere between 650 and 700 members. So we have survived all the downturns, including 9-11, and going strong today, which we're very proud of. To be a member, you have to be flying for a 121 carrier. And 121 carrier is a scheduled airline. So you can be with one of the majors or one of the regionals. That's how you become a member. So I flew for American for 32 years. I retired in 2008. Then I got my flying job that I have now in 2017. And so that's what I'm doing today. I'm old. I'm 68 years old, but I still get to fly jets. And I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> amazing. That is an amazing, amazing story really special episode to have you on for us because we're able to mend two really different industries and career paths per se, but show how they fit into your incredible journey as well, being that 9-11 was definitely a poignant moment in your career. Can you just take us through that time you were flying from Paris to Dallas, is that correct? Sure is. Yes, I was actually an instructor pilot and the co-pilot on that trip was being trained. It was his first trip in the 777, which is the largest airplane in our fleet. It's actually the largest twin jet in the world today. So our trip was Dallas, Paris, Paris, Dallas, three-day trip. We got up that morning. It was a gorgeous morning in Paris and I was having breakfast in the hotel restaurant and the manager came over and got me and told me that my airplane was going to be delayed. All the airplanes come in to us from the U.S. They start their journey in the late evenings and then they arrive early in the morning in Europe. Our airplane had a mechanical in New York, came out of Kennedy. And the only reason I mention our late departure is had we left on time, we would have never landed in Gander. So the late departure truly affected our flight. 
We started out that morning, headed across the North Atlantic, gorgeous day, not a cloud in the sky, which is unusual. There's usually white cloudy skies over the North Atlantic. We were at 30 degrees west longitude, which means right in the middle of our Atlantic crossing. And one of the airplanes in front of us reported that one of the trade towers had been hit by an airplane. And like many of us, including some of the newscasters, you know, we just assumed it was a light airplane. I mean, it didn't enter anybody's mind that it could have possibly been an airliner. And we were eating lunch at the time. We talked about it. We went back to eating lunch. And then I guess it was about 20 minutes later when that same airplane in front of us said that um, the second tower had been hit. And with that came the word terrorism and airliner. I I was so naive. I, I didn't even understand what that possibly could have meant with regard to terrorism. I mean, you know, we didn't know any details. We didn't know the airplanes had been hijacked. And obviously, we were so curious about which airline had hit the tower. Shortly after that, we heard that New York's airspace would be closed, which didn't impact us because we fly what is called a great circle route, which brings us in over northern Canada down through Chicago and into Dallas. So we don't go through New York's airspace on those trips. So we didn't think too much about that. And then shortly thereafter, they said all of the U.S. airspace would be closed. And of course, that impacted us. So we started planning a diversion to Canada. And the most logical cities for us would be Toronto or Montreal, one of the major cities, you know, to take that big airplane into. Then the next thing we learned is at 50 degrees west longitude, which is where you normally come in contact with uh, gander control, because when you're in the middle of the North Atlantic, you're never talking to controllers because you're out of range. But we have a frequency where pilots can talk to pilots. So we always monitor that frequency, but most of the time, nothing is ever said on it. But of course, that day it was very active. So that's exactly what happened at 50 degrees west longitude. Gander Control called us. We were American 49. They said, land your airplane immediately in Gander. And, you know, that certainly wasn't on our radar. We are very familiar with Gander and Halifax and St. John's because they are the airports that we use for emergency diverts whether we have an aircraft problem or a passenger problem. So we know about them. But most airline pilots will spend their whole career and not ever land at any of those places. So it's unusual to go in there. So when I plugged Gander into my computers, it showed that we were going to be 7,000 pounds over our max landing weight. You can land the airplane over its max landing weight. Structurally, the airplane can handle it just fine. But If you opt to do that, you have to have an inspection done by a specifically qualified maintenance person. And I didn't know how many of those they had in Gander. I didn't know how many airplanes were going to be landing in Gander. So I had to make the decision, do I jettison that 7,000 pounds of fuel that I may end up needing later? Or do I take the overweight landing and then have to have the inspection? I decided it would be better to jettison the fuel and land at my normal landing weight. So we did that. And as a result, they took us back over the Atlantic to dump the fuel. And then it put us on a 95-mile final for runway 22 in Gander. And it also made us one of the last airplanes to land. We, a normal final approach is about 15 miles. Ours was 95. And we were number 36 
out of 38 wide bodies to land that day. And it was the most awesome sight when we were on final approach because Gander has a, a beautiful runway structure, but their terminal, their infrastructure is quite small and, and very dated. Their terminal reminds me of the Flintstones house. The furniture is very small. It's very low to the ground and it's orange and lime green plastic. <laughs> so it's, it's so funny. But you know, the runways are great. The airport was actually built by the U.S. State Department for the World War II theaters. It was the last launching place for the war during that time for those little airplanes to go to Europe. So Gander is used to having a lot of airplanes on the ground. However, they had never had 38 wide-body airplanes at one time. So it was a sight to behold. There was heavy metal on every piece of concrete that you could imagine. When I landed, there really wasn't any place left for me to park. So they put me over on what is called the GAT ramp, the general aviation terminal area. The surface there is not load-bearing for an airplane of my size. And the temperatures were unseasonably warm. So as a result, my heavy airplane started sinking into the asphalt. And so when it came time to leave, it was very hard to get the airplane out of there because they don't have tugs to pull you. You have to go out under your own power. And I'm kind of in a hole. We have since gone back to Gander several times and they actually took me out there. My tire prints are still there. So I left my, my prints there for a lifetime. Anyway, after we landed, the Gander authorities came on the airplane. We had flown for about seven hours when we touched down 10.15 in the morning on September 11th. And they told us we would not be getting off to the next day. So we were on the airplane a total of 28 hours. We deplaned at 7.30 on the morning of September 12th. Gosh, we walked into the terminal and that was, that was the first time that I realized that we had landed in an unbelievably unique place. I mean, the terminal was just full of tables with all kinds of food that had been cooked all night. They gave you a plastic bag. It was a little bit like Halloween. You just go around and put anything you want in your plastic bag. Because we got off the airplane early in the morning, I realized that every stove in Gander had been on all night cooking. We were nearly 7,000 passengers and crew that had dropped into a tiny town of 9,400 people unannounced uh, in a three-hour time frame. And oh, we stayed for five days. Wow. So it was a unique experience. The Catholic U leadership team in the Office of Campus Activities has created a new series about applying leadership skills throughout college and life. Tune in to Leadership in 5 and learn about different leadership lessons from your peers. There is also Cups with Joe, an interview-style program hosted by Joseph Arby over everyone's favorite online platform, Zoom. You can listen to both of these exciting programs on our new Instagram, all one word, Catholic U Leadership. My time in Gander was a bit different than most of the passengers because I never knew when we were going to get the call from American to go home and we didn't have cell phones. I know, hard for you to imagine, but we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't have pagers, so there was no way for American to contact me. So I stayed pretty close to the Comfort Inn the whole time I was there where the passengers had more of a chance to mingle with the 
townspeople. My passenger stayed at the Knights of Columbus Lodge, which is no longer there. It's been torn down, but that's where they stayed. So five days later, we launch and we go home. It was a very bittersweet departure. Obviously, we all were ready to get home. Some of the passengers really didn't want to leave. They had had such a wonderful time. They'd been served three meals a day for five days. As a matter of fact, they served 286,000 meals in that time frame to all the passengers and the volunteers. And they took a moose hunting. They went out on boats. They went fishing. There was a make-a-wish flight there. And of course, they never made it to Disney World but the kids had a wonderful time. They went on hay rides. It was constant entertainment for them. So we got home and then I got a call from an Austrian film crew in 2011 in the summer asking me if I was going back to Gander for the 10th anniversary. I said, no, I didn't know that anything was going on. And they said, well, we're actually going back to film Nick and Diane who are in the show. Would you consider going? I said, well, well, let me talk to my husband. And I had always wanted to take my family there because I knew it was going to be a piece of history that would never go away. So I wanted them to know where I was for those five days. So my husband and I went back. The kids couldn't go. They were in school. It was just one beautiful event after the next. I thought we were just going to go to see the Comfort Inn and, and eat at Jungle Gems, which was a restaurant attached to the Comfort Inn where I ate every meal for five days. I didn't know that we were going to be going to all these events. They um, commemorate 9-11, whereas we memorialize it in the U.S. For them, it is about a time of giving and all the wonderful things they did. Because I think there were like 200 airplanes that landed in all of Gander during 9-11. So would you, would you say that for them, they look at it as a time for where they were able to pitch in Absolutely. and do great things. It was the worst tragedy in American history. We handle it in a very different way. That's an, it's just an incredible, it's incredible to hear you recount your perspective being one that flew into the airport that day, not knowing what would extend beyond those five days. Uh, your track record boasts a lot of amazing achievements, such as the first female captain on an American Airlines aircraft. And then later in that same year, you captained uh, the first all-female crew in the history of jet aviation. And then later, you also founded the International Society of Women Airline Pilots, which is now a mentorship for aspiring female pilots. Thank you for already touching on all of that. So my question is, was it your objective to break down these barriers for women or was it just how the cards fell for you? It is literally how the cards fell. I never set out to be anything or do anything special. I just knew at a very young age, like eight, that I wanted to fly airplanes. I just thought it was the coolest job in the whole world. I used to go to the airport and stand by the chain link fence and watch the jets come in. And honestly, I couldn't imagine how those pilots landed those big airplanes. And I thought, yep, that's what I want to do someday. The problem is there weren't any women airline pilots. And I remember thinking, maybe they won't notice that I'm a girl. Maybe they just won't notice, you know. <laughs> I know, what a stupid thought. <laughs> but no, I never set out to do anything special. 
I just knew personally what I wanted to do. And that almost sounds a little bit selfish because now my career path has changed immensely. I do a ton of mentoring. I help young aviators pursue their dream, but certainly I didn't set out even thinking about doing that. And I didn't even know what the glass ceiling was. I had to look it up on Google. I, I didn't know about any of that stuff. I was really very naive about it. I just knew I wanted to fly jets. With regard to ISA, when we started that, the whole reason was we just wanted to meet the other women who did what we did. We wanted to see their uniforms, wanted to know what their uniform hats were like. If we ever ran into each other at an airport, which was so rare, I mean, you went years without seeing another female pilot at any of the airports, we would cause a scene because we would be <laughs> so excited and we would just go, oh my gosh, there's another woman in a uniform like me. We were such oddities and it is so hard to imagine that today because I feel like I can hardly go to DFW or Chicago or New York without seeing a female pilot. And my daughter is a captain for Envoy, which I, of course, love. And she had actually already gotten hired by Delta and had completed her interview with American when COVID hits. So that has been very sad for us. But yeah, as far as the first female captain, everything in the airline industry is based on seniority. So you don't really have any control, you know, when you're going to move up to captain. And it just so happened that it worked out for me. Our number one girl seniority-wise was on maternity leave. And our number two gal locked into a bigger airplane. When you upgrade to a bigger airplane, you have what is called a six-month lock-in. In other words, you go through so much training, they invest so much in you that they don't want you to leave that position in two months. So she was locked in and couldn't get out of that lock-in. So it funneled down to me seniority-wise. So that's how I became the first captain for American. And then as far as the first all-female crew, it was really the first all-female crew for American. I don't ever claim to be anything other than with American. Although I will admit, and it's hard for me to do this, I was the first female captain in the world on the 777. And I did have the first all-female 777 crew in the world. And wow. That so, is incredible. It really is. And it was only because I was an instructor on the airplane and I was training a new gal to be a captain on it. And our third crew member, you always have an augmented crew when you fly long flights. She found out that we were going to be flying together and she trip traded so she could get on our trip. So voila, we ended up with an all-female crew to London's Gatwick Airport. So it was a blast. Wow. Not really shifting gears too much because this all sort of falls into place, but now you're portrayed one of the main roles in a truly international hit musical, Come From Away. And I just want to know a little bit about how this has affected your life. See your story on the stage. And when were you first approached by David and Irene, the writers of the musical, to feature your story? Well, I didn't know that I was going to be in the show. <laughs> so this is actually a very 
funny piece to the story. When I went back to Gander on the 10th anniversary, the world press was there. We did tons of interviews, but you know, it was just for like a five second soundbite for the evening news. And that's when I met David and Irene. And I was told that there were two playwrights in town. Again, I didn't even really know what playwrights were. And they said, you know, would you mind if they interviewed you? I said, no, it'd be fine. Well, the interview lasted four hours and that was the end. I mean, they were, they looked like young kids to me and I never thought about it again. We went back to Texas and that was it. Well, what I didn't realize is over the next four years, they had pretty much gone into hibernation and they wrote the whole show, the book, the lyrics, the play, everything. And during those four years, I would maybe get a random email or a call or something just asking me a very benign question. And I would answer it still never thinking a thing about it. And then in the summer of 2015, Tom and I were down in Florida at our place there, and I got a call from the producers inviting us to the world premiere opening of Come From Away in La Jolla. I didn't even know what they were talking about. So we get on a plane, we go to San Diego, and the night before opening, they had this big party. You know, I've learned that theater people have lots of parties. So... So we walk into this, you know, beautiful restaurant. And one morning I had opened up my computer about six months before all this happened. And I saw a picture of Jen in my uniform. And it's when they're sitting on the plane. So it's the whole cast. I went, why is there a picture of me? And at that time she had blonde hair. And it took me a second to realize that it wasn't me. It was Jen. It was just the weirdest feeling. And so we go to this party and I see Jen way across the room. My daughter's with me. And I said, Paige, I said, I think that's the gal who's playing my role. And so I walked over to her. I was a nervous wreck. And I walked up and I said, you know, Beverly Bass, I think you're playing me in the show. And she said, you don't say. (laughs) And we just became instant friends. We've been so connected ever since, although we laugh because We could not be more different from each other personally. We are very different in every aspect, but we respect each other so much. I respect her craft because, oh my God, I could never get up on stage and do anything that she does ever, but she'll come back and say, Bev, I can't fly a jet, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, So it's really a very interesting relationship. Just a great story. Yeah, it's cool. So we're sitting in the audience. We know not one thing about the show. And we're front and center, about three rows back. And you know how in the beginning of the show, she rolls out her chair and picks up the phone and says, Tom, I'm fine. Oh, my God. My husband buried his head in his hands. It was so bad. The lady behind us, who was one of the big investors in the show, she's like patting him on the shoulder. And she said, it's okay. It's okay. I would say we missed about 75% of the first show. When she started singing Me in the Sky, I was like, oh my God, that is my aviation life chronicled in a four minute, 19 seconds. (laughs) I didn't even know the song had been written. I didn't know anything. Thank goodness. I have now seen it 158 times. So I'm able to get through it a little bit better. 
<laughs> <laughs> well, how many times have you seen it up to this point? Because 158, I would definitely deem you a professional audience <laughs> member of the theater at this point. <laughs> right. I think Tom has seen it 156 times. We're a little bit off because I missed the opening in Australia. He went a day ahead of me because I had a trip in the Phenom. So I went a day later. And then I've had a couple of girls trips. So our numbers aren't exactly the same. But we've been to, I think, 12 openings. We've been to all of the major openings, which is really cool because the producers are so good about bringing the Ganderites in and the come from a ways together. So we've been to Broadway. Tom and I went to Winnipeg for the opening. The Toronto opening did the show in D.C., Gander, London, Melbourne. We've been all over. Wow. Amazing. I love that story. That's awesome. So you've touched on this a little bit. As Brandon said, you're almost a professional come from away uh, audience member. So since the COVID shutdown, you know, how has it been adjusting to like your new lifestyle? Well, I have to say, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but things had gotten so busy for us not only just going to the show, but I do a lot of PR work for the show in that I go to events with people who are setting up things for corporations to do when they are in town for like a convention. They'll bring in people, oh, anywhere from five to 10 Broadway shows to do snippets of those shows to the audience. And the audience is anywhere from 200 to 4,000 people. So it's huge. I've done so many, I can't even count at this point. I would say there were months where I didn't have three days off without having some obligation to the show. And of course, I'm willing to do everything to promote the show because I believe in it so much. And I think it's such a magnificent, beautiful story. And I remember the day that we flew out of Gander and I said to the guys in the cockpit, I want the whole world to know about the experience in Gander. And the whole world is learning about the Gander story. And it's doing that because of Come From Away. So that's why we go to so many of the shows. And now what has happened is there are so many women pilots who put groups together in every city. So when the show goes to their city, you know, they want me to come and have lunch or have dinner. And, you know, I don't want to say no. So it was just endless so at the beginning of COVID, I mean, my husband and I looked at each other and said, you know, it's almost nice to have a little bit of downtime, but now I don't like the downtime. It has been <laughs> way too long and I'm over COVID. <laughs> but where do y'all live? I'm in Baltimore. And I'm in New Jersey. We both go to school at Catholic University in DC together at the moment. Uh yeah, well, I'm not a good COVID person. I played the game for 47 days. And after that, our restaurants in Texas opened up to 25%. We went out to dinner that night, and I haven't stopped since. And as you may know, Texas and Florida, where our homes are, they're very liberal with regard to COVID restrictions. So down where I am in Florida, which is actually on a small island, you wouldn't even know there is COVID. Our restaurants are perfectly normal. We live a normal life. Texas is pretty much the same. I said that I would do cartwheels naked down Fifth Avenue if it meant getting theater back and the airlines back. 
and our lives back. But I can't do cartwheels and nobody wants to see me naked. So <laughs> I, I volunteered to be in the Pfizer trial. So I was a lab rat and I've had two doses of the vaccine. My family begged me not to do it because of my age and I have asthma, but I felt that strongly about getting our lives back. So that's what I did. It was the only good thing I could do. Wow, that's incredible. And thank you for doing that because it seems that we're moving in a really positive direction at the moment in terms of vaccines. We really are. My greatest hope is that people will get the vaccine and we can put this in the rear view mirror. Absolutely. And building off of that, you know, it's a hard time for many young folks. And that's the purpose of this podcast is to inspire folks breaking into this industry, but any other industry listening at the moment. So what advice do you have for young women or anyone else looking to break the barriers of an industry going forward? And given your incredible experiences with the theater community and how you've been able to mesh with them as well, this speaks to theater at the given moment. What advice do you have for young folks trying to go forward with their careers despite everything? Well, it certainly is very hard right now, and I'm more closely connected to the airline industry where thousands have been laid off. And of course, in the theater industry, you are so similar to us as pilots, because what I would tell you is I don't know how to do anything else. I only know how to be a pilot. And I think theater people are so similar. They are so enamored and wrapped around their craft and they put so much energy into learning the craft. It's the same way with pilots. I mean, we go through years and years and years of training and it never stops. Even when you get your coveted job with the airlines, you are constantly training and you are very much the same. You're always rehearsing. I mean, I've learned so much about the theater world as a result of this journey that I've been on. And COVID has caused a huge setback. My daughter's a perfect example. She cannot get hired until all the people who are laid off get called back to work. And so it has set her back for probably a couple of years, which has been terrible. And so the only thing you can do is not give up. This will be a blip on the radar screen later in life. If you will remember, 9-11 was a 10-year setback, not necessarily for the theater world. You came back faster than we did, but I will tell you that American Airlines did not hire a single pilot for 10 years after 9-11. We call it the lost decade. I think this will be shorter, which is a very good thing. And fortunately, there has been a CARES Act that didn't happen during 9-11. So that was a little bit of a gift, if you will, that needed to happen, in my opinion. So you have to just keep on, persevere. And in our world, what I tell young women especially, because it is such a man's world, I believe in the theater world, it's a little more evened out, if you will. But you have to maintain respect in the working environment. It is so important that the men that you work with respect you. And as a result, you have to garner that respect. And the knowledge that you have with regard to the airplane and your aviation skills, I'm not going to say I had it easy, but I never 
had any problem with guys at the airlines because they respected me from the get-go. I mean, I was a very junior young instructor, and I'm working with very senior longtime captains, and they were fabulous to me. Great. That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, for sharing the stories of your career and all your successes. Last year, you released a book called Me in the Sky, which is a children's book autobiography hybrid. So my question with that is, how did you decide you wanted your autobiography to be a picture book? And where can the book be purchased? The book can be purchased on Amazon. And I never wanted a book about myself. A lot of women airline pilots have already written books. And what happened is two young gals from Random House went to see Come From Away on Broadway. And they approached one of the producers to see if they could get in touch with me about doing my autobiography. Put me in touch with them. We met with them. And I said, no, I said, I just don't feel like my career path is that unusual compared to other women. So I wouldn't do it. So we met a couple of times and Finally, they said, well, what would you think of a children's book? And to my knowledge, there had not been a children's book written in an autobiography way. And I said, oh, okay, now I'll think about it because... I said to myself, it would be so selfish of me if I didn't allow that to happen. And maybe it would even give some young person a chance to live the career and life that I have been so fortunate to have. So I said, I will do it as long as it is for very young children. So that's how it came about. You know, the cover jackets and stuff tell a lot about my career, but the the book itself is for very young kids. And I got to pick the illustrator. She and I actually went to see Come From Away together well after the book was written. We hadn't met before and we saw the show together in DC. So that was a wonderful experience for me. Very proud of the book. And here's the other piece of good news. Come From Away was supposed to go and play all over China and Asia when COVID hit. And my book has just been picked up by two publishers in China. Congratulations. That's excellent. Yeah. So the book should come out about the time the cast goes to China to do the show. Wow. Excellent. Well, Me in the Sky, Beverly's book on Amazon.com. Be sure to support that as well. This has been an incredible interview to talk about, you know, you're just amazing career in the sky. And then to hear a recount from you of what it really inspired come from away and everything that followed it. So thank you so much for joining us today. One other thing that I forgot to mention when I was talking about ISA is we are very active with regard to giving out scholarships for young women aviators. And to date, we have given out over $4.5 million worth of scholarship money. We're the largest single donator of scholarship money for young women aviators. So for such a small group, we've been able to help a lot of young people. Wow. Amazing. amazing. Thank you. Great note to end on. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, y'all. I enjoyed it. Thank (laughs) you so much and take care, stay well, and hope to see you in the theater again soon. I hope so.